Welcome to Brews Rock. We're Chuck Mountain, a band nestled in the beautiful beer country of North Carolina. Each week, we pick brewers' minds about their brewing philosophy and pick up tricks to bring new life to your home brew. We played at countless breweries and decided it was about time to learn how to craft our own. What it takes to take down the mountain. mountain. Well, come on out and show us what you got. What you got, man? We're hosting a darts tournament at Jake's Billiards here in Greensboro, North Carolina, on March 23rd. 23rd. Come on out for pint night and enjoy a nice fool's journey, hazy pale ale, made in collaboration with Little Brother Bruin and Chuck Mountain. mountain. There will be prizes for the grand prize winner. There will be fun to be had by out. We'll see you there. See you there. If you dare. <laughs> hey everyone, welcome back to Bruise Rock. Today we're taking on a trip down south to High Point, North Carolina, where we visit Paddled South Brewing and chatted with their brewers Dave and Patrick. We learned about the ups and downs of opening a brewery, got some great tips on brewing beer at home, and heard about the unique story behind the name Paddled South. Plus, we got to taste some amazing beer and learn the science behind blending malts and hops to create a unique flavor. Can I get each of your names, how long you've both been brewing, and where we're at? Sure. I'm Dave, and I've been brewing probably nine years now. Mm -hmm. My name is Patrick. I've been brewing 18 years now. So how long has Paddled South been here? About a year and a half. Uh, we opened May of 2021. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So we're getting ready to celebrate our two-year anniversary in May. We're excited about it. We, we chose this location because of everything that was happening in downtown. Um, stadium is literally a block up that way. There's cool. a food hall right over in center field of the stadium. It made sense. We've been in High Point how long? I mean, you've been 30 years? 30 years now, I am. Yeah, and I've been here for 20 some years. So we're both dedicated to High Point. We want to see High Point change. Of course, if you have any questions along the way, uh, we will yeah, we'll have plenty of questions. <laughs> yeah, so we, we know nothing. It's like we've learned just from a few conversations all that we know so far. Yeah. <laughs> so this is really where the brewing takes place. Hot liquor tank, mash tun, kettle. We can do three barrels in this system. Our fermenters are six barrel, with the exception of the plastic fermenters. Those are also three barrel. Uh, plastic fermenters are primarily used for saisons and sours because the temperature doesn't have to be regulated as much, uh, we still try to regulate it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want huge swings, which would happen in the summertime. But yeah, so this is the system. It's an older system, it's about 15 years old, and it's all integrated. Where did you get your equipment from? So we actually found a brewery down in South Carolina that was closing, oh, and they were selling the entire brew house. I mean, they basically said, 
ideally, we just want somebody to come in and buy everything. And I went and looked at it and we decided on this aspect of the brew house. We didn't get everything. They had a cooler that was probably three times that cooler, maybe four. I mean, it was ginormous. They wanted to sell that. We got almost all of our kegs from them. I mean, hoses, fittings, you name it. We, you know, and we were able to come in and pretty much hook it up and get it going. Any recipes? No, they didn't give us <laughs> Didn't purchase that. The guy who started it actually is still brewing. He's in Morganton at Sidetrack Brewing. He actually designed this system. When we bought it, he found out and he basically said, I'll come help you set it up. That's cool. I know the system. Easily and the best investment we did because everything was in pieces. Absolutely. We could have figured it out, but it was going to take a while because you, you just had boxes of parts. Yeah, know, these yeah. are pretty obvious. You got hoses, but then you go like electrically, which one plugs where yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. So it really helped us tremendously. Had him come down for a weekend. We did our first batch with him. So that way we could troubleshoot what we had. Well, that's been like a big thing we've learned. Collaboration is huge. Like you, you can always ask for help and that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, I don't think we look at each other as competitors as much as compadres more than anything. We just want to help each other be successful. And when we started talking about opening the brewery here, Patrick and I would go down to Brown Truck all the time and we would sit and talk about this business at their place. And they were just as excited for us to open up as we were. You know? That's awesome. And so, I mean, and there are only more industries the around the world were like that. And Might be a little more successful. always some equipment you don't have that somebody else probably does. Yeah, and, and, um, and they might have an understanding of it too. They might yeah, be able to help you exactly. figure out things or give you pointers. It's the cup of sugar thing. It's like you need a, neighbor. some grain, mm -hmm. you yeah. need some hops. Yep. Yeah, and we have. There have been times where we've needed rice hulls. You know, we're going to do something heavy with oats and it's going to stick if we don't put rice hulls in it. And they've helped us out. We've helped them with muslin bags or hops or whatever. You need to take care of your friends and neighbors. Yeah, just absolutely. Just to make sure everybody's successful. The craft beer community has exploded. Like yeah, in so, North Carolina yeah. for a long time. And like my dad, he owns a bottle shop in Fuquay. And we just keep talking about, we're like, when's this bubble gonna burst? You know, it's like- That's you look kind of ratio of people to breweries. I don't know if you saw, I think it was Brewers Associate came out recently. I think North Carolina's ring fifth the difference between fifth and first is not 10 percent it's 400 percent so you go if another state can support that much concentration yeah. north carolina should be able to support that yeah so how did you guys come about getting together um was that home brewing was that brewing at a it was home brewing. brewing home brewing and then what were you doing besides that my full-time job i'm a physician assistant and oh, okay. still am this is my hobby second business so to speak yeah. and i was teaching Teaching? Yeah. What were you teaching? Fifth and sixth grade. Oh, I'm a teacher as well. well so. There you go. <laughs> so you completely understand why I drink. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. It is. But I mean, I loved it. I enjoyed it. And I still stay in touch with my friends from especially my most recent school. When we started brewing, I, there's no way that I could have stayed, continued to taught, and brewed full-time here. Yeah. And then how did you two meet? Interestingly, via Facebook. Really? I'm caught on Facebook and I ran across a brewery in High Point. I went, I only know one brewery in High Point. So I was like, okay. So I clicked. I already had 600 followers for a place that wasn't open. I was like, I need to talk to this person. 
So that's why I kind of sent a message to Dave and we met up at a local establishment over a couple beers. I had my list of about 30 questions and we went through it and it made sense for partnership. Um, Dave's definitely brewing much more than I am. I do test batches at home, but I help more on the business, the marketing side and so forth with my experience with what I do currently. How do you come up with your recipes? Is it like a collaboration between you two or you each bring one to the table? We do talk to each other about the recipes, what we're going to brew. We want to be balanced, but we also want to offer things that not every other brewery has. We try to keep the boards rotating pretty consistently, offer something for everybody. So there's always a light beer. There's always a sour up there. There's always a dark beer. High percentage beer. High percentage beer, yeah. (laughs) More so in the wintertime. Yeah. uh, Yeah. But the other piece of that is knowing the beers, knowing the taste profiles, knowing about the grains themselves. We just take what we understand about a beer and then we formulate recipes. Early on, I don't know how you handled your recipes, but I pretty much researched online. I would look up what different breweries and what different recipes there were for, say, a Kolsch or for a Belgian quad. And I would look at all the recipes and look at what the common denominators were, and then I would figure out how can I put a little twist on it or what can I do differently And when we talk high percentage beers, this system really isn't set up to do 500 pounds of grain. Our cap is about 300 pounds of grain, and then we're at the top. So we have to get creative on how to drive those ABVs up. So the recipes for the most part, and I think almost every brewery would tell you it's some derivative of, or a combination of a bunch of different recipes. Or they went to a brewery, tasted something, and they're like, ooh, I want to try to recreate recreate this. And then they go back to the drawing board and figure out what do I know is traditionally in this beer? And then how can I put a twist on it? Remember, there's a whole lot of science in brewing. And then the art on top. If you screw up the science, it doesn't matter how artistic you are. So (laughs) you do have to do your calculations, look at your strike points and so forth. You got to get that down good. The thing that we want to do with this podcast is try to help people that want to start getting into making beer because that's something we want to do. We've done some collaborations with breweries, but we weren't part of the brewing process. We're about to be, which is cool. But what are the mistakes that you're talking about that lead beer to taste bad? Well, you have to watch temperatures, especially with your yeast. I think early on, we we had a, a cooling system that was horribly underestimated. Not by us, we won't mention the person. So we had problems controlling some temperatures. So, you know, we got to where the yeast temperatures and they basically start autolyzing. So you get that smoky note to it and you can't get that out of there. So you have to really be controlling about your temperatures, know what your yeast ranges are. So those were probably some of the early challenges we had just controlling temperatures. Luckily, the system we have, and there's a huge machine outside that helps us, lets us keep these exactly to the degree and a half we want. So that's really helped with the quality of the beer. That's cool. So how do you control, like if you're home brewing, how do you control the heat on this? Like you just have to keep it climate controlled in your house? Yeah, and most homes stay within a certain range. You know, and if you know that you need to put this in a cooler spot, you can park it in a dark corner of a closet, which is probably gonna be cooler than the rest of your house. So there are ways to do it. They also sell jackets that you can put on buckets or carboys that you can set the temperature and it'll regulate the temperature. 
there's a thermometer that'll go down into the, the wort yep. for the beer itself. I was just gonna say, now you can actually buy miniature versions yes. of this equipment for home. Probably and not cheap. It's not <laughs> no, cheap, it's not. but that's pretty good science to do some test batches and really have a lot of control. Because yeah, you know, yeah. most of the time at home, you're throwing in a bucket or a carboy, and in ales, you're okay, because your room temp pretty much stays, but you can't do a lot of fancy stuff outside of those ranges unless you've got those devices. When you were saying you do test batches of your recipes at home, mm -hmm. tell us, like, how long does that take? It depends on what I'm doing. I think everybody probably should start with kits. Obviously, the malt syrup is there if you're scared of whole grain. But once you do that a couple times and you read up about whole grain, it's not that scary. It's just you've got to go, okay, I've got to keep a temperature. Do I have a cooler I can use? Yeah. And so you use that. But recipes we kind of look at and how do I tweak that, like Dave was saying. Some of that is adjuncts. We, uh, one of our first beer we did uh, called it the Badass Mojito Weed. It was a beer, it's a wheat beer that I did, added mint and jalapeno to it. And it Sounds really great. ended up being a great complex beer. Um, I started with five jalapenos and I think it was about a, a half a cup or so of dried mint and it just works. So we were like, okay, let's replicate that on this system. Scale it up. It's okay, this worked for this much. Yeah. Recording and playing music, there's a lot of science that goes into it too, just okay. with all the different plugins and all the different equipment, does different things to the sound profile. Mm -hmm. But all the different equipment you have in here and all the different grains, like that gives you different flavor profiles instead of sound profiles. It's like, it's just interesting to hear what makes the flavors that we like. It's like, we like IPAs and we know it's hops, but I know there's so many different types of hops. What are your favorite types of hops that you've been working with? I'm a big Idaho 7, Sabro, Citra. You know, I like the juice bombs. And I'm then I'm a classic kind of guy too. I like the CTZ, the Centennial, Azaka, Amarillo. Some of those hops that have been around and used a lot in different types of beers. But my biggest kick right now is probably Idaho 7. It's just really good. It, and that's in the cold IPA. It's so good. It's, it's a different flavor, flavor profile than I was expecting, but it's smooth and sweet and juicy. Yeah, and, yep. yeah it's, it's a wild, it's a wild beer. And the yeast also plays a big part in it too. You know, I mean, depending on how it eats up sugars and the flavor profiles it releases, it varies. And then you throw hops in, if you're dry hopping, it can affect how the yeast works on those sugars. And it'll, it could even cause it to continue to ferment after you move it into kegs. So the flavor profile could change depending on the yeast and the hops that you use. It's called hop creep, you know, where it just continues to work yeah. on the yeast. It's really interesting. And yes, there's a lot of science to it, but there's also a lot of experimentation, which I guess goes into science as well. But were you a science teacher? I was. <laughs> it makes sense. It all makes sense now. Yeah, but fifth and sixth grade science. So it's like I could tell anybody about clouds. Not necessarily, you know, now you about, can tell people about cloudy beards. That's right. I tease my background undergraduate. I had to take a bunch of science, bunch of maths and biology, chemistry. And then when I got our PA school, one of the things we learned is sterile technique. One of the things home brewers screw up it's pretty fun. commonly yeah. Yeah. is they get a contaminant. So I was like, okay, that's my sterile field. I'm sterile, my hands are up. So it was nice getting into it, having some of that background already. So I didn't make the mistakes that other people do just because it's a, a new technique or a new experience. 
Yeah, one of the first brewers we talked to, his main tip was cleanliness. Yeah. yeah, just making sure everything is clean. You know, and I tell people all the time, 95% of what I do is clean. I brew 5% of the time. The rest of the time is cleaning, cleaning. Yeah. and making sure that everything is sanitary. Hot water is our friend along mm -hmm. with isopropyl. And then of course, cleaning everything down. Uh, grain dust can be a big enemy. Do you, you keep your grain separate from the rest of this stuff? In we here? do, yeah, we keep it up in the closet and we have it pre-milled okay. just okay. to keep the dust factor yeah, to a like minimum. People there are like, we do it over here and then mm -hmm. it gets transferred all the way over here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the grain does well. Because like, the dust can actually sour, sour your beer. beer. Yeah. Yeah. We actually heard about a process of someone, that's how they did their souring. They would mm -hmm. take the grain bag and they would just dip it down in. Yep. That's yep. <laughs> what we did yep. when we first started. We would take about a pound or two of Pills malt and just throw it into the kettle, leave it for 48 hours, pull it out, and then boil. Yeah. Where did the name Paddle South Brewing come from? Yeah, so when we first decided to create the brewery, we didn't know what we were gonna call it. And my family and I were, driving somewhere and we were just spitballing, literally just throwing <laughs> out names. And I've always been a big outdoor guy. And I said, well, when I moved here, I kind of did paddle south and you know, just stuck at that point. Everybody's like, yeah, that's it. That's the name that's of the, the brewery. Name. And it tells our story, tells what we're all about and what we enjoy. So it encompassed everything that we thought we needed to include in a name. So. Are you doing a barrel aged over here? Nothing right now. Those are a couple, you know, the back one's a tequila barrel, the front one's a bourbon. We did last year, we put the badass mojito wheat in the tequila, which turned out really nice. It had a great tequila profile, but you still got that mint and jalapeno. And then we did a Belgian in the bourbon and released that on our first year anniversary. And it was a good beer too, it turned out great. And those were the first barrel aged beers I had done. So being in downtown High Point, how has High Point received you guys? Yeah, no, I think we're probably the first wave downtown. High Point's known for furniture. There's 13 million square feet of showroom downtown. It's used two to three times a year. So there wasn't any, any traditional downtown structure. So actually several of the key leaders in High Point got together, organized, and brought in the uh, Rockers, which is an affiliated feeder system ball. So that catalyst started things. So you've got a stadium that holds, I believe, 3,600 or so. So that was the first project. And then we've seen some warehouses that weren't being used that are now being converted to retail office space. And then like us, other businesses have come in. So within about a, a three block radius here, you've got <laughs> 400 times as much that you had two years ago. Yeah, because I know when they do the furniture stuff, a lot of times, like Greensboro gets a lot of people that are here for that, but they're mm -hmm. traveling. I guess it's because everyone just thinks there's nothing around here, but maybe it's changing, right? It's changing. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Breweries are a really good thing for a city. Breweries are a communal place that people can mm -hmm. go. And it just it, it's a reason people that are right outside of High Point, they can come and meet here. It's, it's like back to the old days where there was taverns, like a great place to just go and have great conversations yeah. and it's like a relaxed place even doing this podcast we've never met y'all but it's been a relaxed conversation because it's a bird like mm -hmm. we're just hanging yeah. out with the thing we love well and that's what we you know we're driven up around community we really are when we opened we positioned ourselves as a community brewery 
And, and after years of brewing, the beer would bring people together and you'd have great, real conversations and you enjoy the camaraderie of that. The beer helped yeah, and really provided another that. platform. And we positioned ourselves downtown to help the community as well. We want to see downtown High Point change. And the only way you're gonna do that is if you actually put yourself in it and try to do something yourself, yeah. so. It was interesting about this building. Before I met Dave, I've probably driven by this 500,000 times from work with things and just looked at it. Nothing really interesting from the outside. It's been a, a medical billing facility. It was a rug dealer, yeah, a rug dealer lamps, yeah, everything, everything before. So when I met with Dave and we came here, I was like, okay. Walked in and we had drop ceiling here yeah. up to about the border there where they had done offices. And then the rest of it was pretty much just rough. But you walk in and you look at the ceilings, you're going, these are 14 feet tall. And then you look, that's real wood. You don't see that yeah, other no, places. It's in good shape. So yeah. we were able to come in and Dave did most of the knockdown work here, but we were able to look at the space and go, okay, this could be a cool space. And then we worked with some good designers and architects. So we took a shell that really had not been used for much of anything for years. Uh, this building is, 80 90, years old, 90 years old. 90 years old, I believe. Built in the 30s, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Interestingly, one of the things we found out when we were doing getting the trench and plumbing put in is there's another foundation underneath this. Really? Oh, they just well, that must have been real fun. To yeah. So <laughs> luckily, the guys they were doing was like, okay, we're not going to charge you twice, but now they got to trench that one because you got to get down to grade. Yeah. So little surprises in old buildings. It's, it's like when you rip up a carpeting and then you find like, Another carpet. Yeah. Another carpet. <laughs> yeah, and there's like vinyl tile. Yeah. And you then just keep going. Under, How many layers yeah. they just flap and then on? Underneath this. is beautiful oak. Yeah. And you go, why did they cover yeah. this? Why would you ever <laughs> cover this up? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there are three ceilings in here. So there was a tin right up on the wood. And then there was a drop ceiling and then another drop ceiling. And they that's actually. the original wood. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's, oh, yeah. That's wow. Strange. That's all original. Yeah. Cow. Yeah. Yeah. You could have told me you put it in. Yeah. It was put yeah, in 10 years ago. It looks brand new. Yeah. And it's got a scissor truss to it, which you don't see too much anymore with modern building, to where you've got some oh, load, yeah. load split across so that oh, yeah. the load that. actually comes down and presses out to the walls right off. That's so cool. What have the biggest challenges been for you so far? Who I would say probably our biggest challenge is downtown High Point. And that was one of those things that we knew we wanted to be downtown. We knew we wanted to be close to where the stadium was. We knew there's a lot of new things growing in this area, and that's where we wanted to be. The flip side of it is people don't come downtown High Point. The majority of the things are north of us or east of us towards Greensboro. I would say second is people don't know about us, even though we have a lot of followers and we have a lot of people who are regulars, there are still people who live in High Point that have no idea we're here. And it's that challenge of overcoming the perception that there is no downtown. Yeah. yeah. Uh, our city's logo is the international city. That's because <laughs> people from all over come to market. Now, I have another one and I'll slightly censor it is the high point more than effing furniture. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we should change to because there are things downtown now that people had to go to Greensboro, yeah. had to go to Winston-Salem. Yeah, I mean, there are cool, I mean, there are cool spots all up and down Main Street. You yeah. got the Biscuit Factory. They're like cool, they're older spots, but they're all really cool. They have a lot of history. So that's why I don't know why more people don't just 
come check it out. Yeah. As far as like your favorite types of beers to brew, like what are y'all's favorites to do? I mean, I'm an IPA guy. I've always been an IPA guy. So I'm, and I'm more of an American IPA guy than hazies, cold IPAs. So I would say that's probably my favorite. Close second now, since I've been brewing more, is sours. I really enjoy sours, coming up with different recipes. And we get a lot of feedback from customers too about, hey, you should do this kind of beer, or hey, you should do this. And we oftentimes will, just yeah. because we can't. And we're small enough where it's not gonna hurt us to throw- Try something out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. throw mm -hmm. something in where normally you wouldn't, you know? And we'll get ideas from customers and we'll bring them in on the day we brew it. Yeah. And go, hey, that was a good idea, come see us do it. So. They that's really cool. get involved with the beer and sometimes the beer gets named after them. So well, that's awesome. That's a good way to involve your community and to get them excited about it. And then they're like, well, hey, I had this idea. And then they bring all their friends in. And yeah. Yep. Sell the beer for you. Absolutely. <laughs> and they'll drink yep. it too. Yeah. <laughs> Out of your beers you have on tap right now, can you tell us a little history about any of those? I don't know that there's much history behind them. Or I like mean, inspirations. Yeah, so Tricentennial was a beer that Patrick made at home, a small batch. When it was done, we were sitting on his back porch and we enjoyed it. We, we had a few and it was one of those <laughs> things where like, this should be one of the beers we're brewing. It's just yeah. that good of a beer and it's a solid beer. So, you know, decisions about what we've brewed have oftentimes come from us just hanging out, reflecting on the beers and figuring out if it's a profile that we feel would work. I think the red, white, and blue is red, probably blue. a great one to talk yeah. about. That one was a kind of a joke for us, really, because we we're like, wanted to do something for the 4th of July. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're like, let's try something different. So took a Hefeweizen and added raspberry banana blue agave to it. And we're like, we'll throw it up on the board. I think everybody was a little bit skeptical that it would be received very well. And it was a hit. And it's been a hit ever since. It's almost a cult following really, and people come in and that's all they want to drink. So when it's not here, they're, they're, they're seeing some pretty <laughs> yeah. upset people like, because hey. that's what they want. Bring it back, that's we'll come back thing. with yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. If you find something that works like that, it's a good thing to have people be like, we still want it, yeah. put a bag on there. Yeah, Nutty Blonde was another one, yeah. just a Belgian blonde with honey and peanut butter. And what, really was, what did it look like? <laughs> was it cloudy or was it clear? It was clear. Clear. A lot of those peanut butter beers, like a lot of times they'll get a yeah, little haze. All the the yeah. protein from it. Yeah. And then the oils, of course, kill the head retention, but it turned out to be a, a great beer. And that's another one that just naturally happened just from our travels and trying different things and then saying, hey, what if we did this? Yeah. You know? So that's a little bit of the history behind some of them. I mean, we've had the Badass Mojito Wheat was another homebrew. Do you have that tried. here still or is we don't. that a seasonal thing? Yeah, we actually got our Tangerine Heat, which is- I was a, looking at that one. That, I yeah. almost got that one until I heard he had the cold idea. Yeah, yeah. And that one has how much tangerine? About 90 pounds. So no. yeah, almost a pound per gallon of That's tangerine. Wow. Yeah, tangerine puree. And then habanero and serrano in it as well. Yeah. So it's- but it is, heat going. Yeah. 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 yeah, but it is not an overpowering heat. Yeah, you taste the pepper, a little bit in the back of the throat, 
it stays there. It's mellow with things. So cool. it's not a super spice, a jalapeno heavy or a pepper heavy, I should say, beer. It's there for the flavor. Which is impressive because alcohol actually increases the heat flavor in your yeah. mouth. Yeah. It's like, I don't know, it was joint mongers. They do ghost pepper IPAs all the time, or ghost pepper pale ales. And, yeah, and it was like, oh my goodness. Well, we'll, we'll be drinking those while we're playing. Uh, and it's just like, oh, somebody bring me a water. Yeah. <laughs> and that's our golden rule. I've always said it still has to be a beer at the end of the game. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, so you can, you can make six, all man. kinds of stuff that it's not really beer at some point. Yeah. And you go, something like that, if I can't drink with it, I'm about to cry. Not necessarily a thing I'm going to drink more than a sample of. Yeah, yeah. So I have a question for both of you. What is your favorite beer you've made, whether it's here or home brewing? It's like choosing children. Hey, <laughs> Which does. one's your favorite? Everyone, Everyone has does a favorite it. kid. <laughs> it's always me. They just don't talk about it. I, I would say I've probably got a top three. I think what you have is in my top three. Yeah, it's the so cold good. IPA, it's just a great beer, great recipe. The quadrant that we have from the quad Belgian, outstandingly good Belgian. Um, I've been blessed oh, to have a lot of Belgians. That's the best I've had. And then I'm a little still partial to, I guess, my tricentennial recipe. Um, cold IPA is definitely up there as well for me. We have a pumpkin spice ale that we do, and it's good too. I'm not a seasonal beer guy. I tend to try not to do that, but it's good beer. It is a good beer. Great name as well. Yeah, Ick we call it Ichabod. Ichabod. Oh. Yeah, so I'd say those two, probably top, gosh, picking a third. I don't know, let me think about that. Uh, me- I'll throw my third as the birthday Belgian that was a good beer. Bourbon barrel yeah. that we well, did. You guys kept talking about your um, your badass mojitos. So yeah, I, I was pretty sure that was going to be like yeah, the first one you guys said. Mainly, it's a good yeah, beer. Yeah, definitely good a good beer. I'm not. I've never been a huge spice in beer. That's, you know, that's spicy fair. hot spice in beer. Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about? Anything that you, you want? Anything upcoming? Yeah, I was going to say, Dave, you want to walk them through a little bit from the hot side. Yeah, I mean, so... We would love to do that. Yeah, so depending on the type of beer and what kind of sugars you want to extract, lower temperature results in more simple sugars, which allows for more crisp, and that's more of a lager, lighter beers, whereas the higher temperatures get more mouthful feel, stay sweeter too, because they're more complex sugars. Yeast doesn't break them down. So grains go in here, we let the grains sit with hot water for about 60 minutes, sometimes 90, just depending on what we're doing. And then we transfer it over to here. The liquid in here, after it sits, it's called wort, W-O-R-T. And it, of course, is not beer until it ferments out. So you gotta wait a little while. But then we run hot water over it, basically to do two things. One, to stop the protein conversion, and two, to rinse it try to get as much of that sugar out as we can possibly get. Transfer it over here, bring it to a boil. This is where the hops are added. Any adjuncts, I'll drop serrano peppers in here when I'm doing the tangerine. Orange uh, peel for, we have a Kolsch that's getting ready to come on, put orange peel in. So once we're done here, we go through the heat exchange. It drops the temperature from about 195, 200 degrees to about 50 degrees or 55 degrees. You know, if I go wide open, it'll drop the temperature almost 55 Is this degrees. Still outside? Yeah, so there's a chiller out here, and it's pumping glycol through these lines. 
and that's on your ferment or these are jacketed. So that coolant's going through in between the space, the outer and the inner shell. So once it comes through the heat exchange, we're pushing it into the fermenter and we're combining oxygen with it as well because the yeast need that oxygen to start the process of breaking down those sugars. So once it's in the fermenter, we usually set it on a certain temperature. It depends on the type of beer as well and the type of yeast. Some yeast need a lower temperature. You don't have to regulate saisons and sours. And then some like lagers need a cooler temperature. So you regulate the temperature here on the fermentation side. The yeast, we pitch yeast onto the top. There are some yeast that you can throw in while you're filling or moving the wort over. So there's multiple ways to do that. And then we just park it for a few weeks, transfer it out of here into the cooler, into bright tanks. And the bright tanks basically are carbonation. Yeah, it's just cool. Even just seeing the different fabrications of tanks, like your tanks look mm -hmm. different than any tanks oh, we've yeah. seen. So. Yep. And these are six barrels, but I mean, you'll see under barrel. Yeah. No, I mean, nature of the roof, it's a whole different level of brewing at that point. Yeah. We definitely want to like try to get into a place that has like the gigantic, uh -huh. like we, we haven't we, been there yet. We, yeah, we, we do have some far. vertical space yeah. here. So, like, I would love to just go to like Anheuser Busch and just see it's like this is insane. Yeah. This is three, a robot. Been to three plus cores and just the scale is sheer madness. One, one of their tanks that they add the Beechwood to is 24,000 barrels and they have a whole warehouse refrigerated filled with them. It is just the scale that they brew on. Now, you know, a lot of people talk trash about your mainstream beers, but yeah. you know, one thing you can say is if you get a Budweiser here and you're in Japan, it it's tastes the same. the same. So they've got the science down, what they do, they, they do good. It's not yeah. beer for everybody, but these guys been making the same beer consistent that long. That's tough in brewing. Is he still drinking it though? That's, uh -huh. that that's the correct. real question. So there's actually beer in Louisville. I grew up just south of Louisville, Fall City. And Fall City hadn't been made in years. It was kind of German brewers, which was the kind of pre-70s sort of thing. And a microbrewery there bought it, bought the recipe, and it's one of their bigger sellers uh, with it. So you always have to look and go, is it still the same company? Is it still the same beer? We, I mean, I know I've learned even more. Like we, yeah. I, I, I learned so good. Much. And it's just cool that everyone has their own philosophy. We just appreciate. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks thank you. so much. Yeah. Nice talking course. to you. Yeah. Good talking to you as well. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Bruise Rock. We hope you enjoyed hearing from Patrick and Dave and learned something new about the brewing process. And if you're ever in the High Point area, make sure you swing by Paddled South and give their beers a try. You won't be disappointed. And don't forget to check out our new single, Fool's Journey, which just dropped on February 24th. It's a Southern Rock anthem to self-discovery that we put our heart and soul into. As always, we appreciate you listening and supporting our podcast. If you have suggestions for future episodes or want to share your favorite beers with us, hit us up on Instagram at Pod. Until next time. Please.